If you enjoy the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircurrentreview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Ward, when did you become interested in aviation? Kind of at birth, Mike. Uh, my dad was a Marine Corps attack pilot, so I was surrounded by airplanes and aviators and we lived on base when i was little at marine corps air station el toro that isn't there anymore that's where i saw my first air show that's where i saw the blue angels for the first time nice. how old is mooch they were flying f-11s the first wow. time i saw them you know in the early 60s and so naturally uh as i followed my dad's career and followed him around the country and the world. We lived in Holland for three years when I was in middle school, when uh, he was the assistant naval attache in The Hague in the Netherlands, which really did sort of open my worldview quite a bit and my musical taste, by the way. So that's my first influence. And so when you go through high school, I lived on base at Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point in North Carolina when I was in high school. My dad was the commanding officer of an A6E squadron, VMA All-Weather 121, the Green Knights. Nice. So I got to hang out at the squadron and talk to his junior officers, many of whom were Naval Academy graduates. And as I was getting ready to pick a college, it came down to two. One was the University of Michigan, and the other was the Naval Academy. And you know how it is when you're 17 18 years old you don't you have sort of a sense you don't have any like burning path and for some reason the naval academy just felt like a a better fit and right. that's a subjective thing because i had never been to the naval academy which is a huge leap of faith in hindsight so my sat scores and my other sort of high school profile uh, was okay, but not good enough to get me in first time. So I wound up getting in a prep school program where I went down to Texas and spent a year in Texas at a prep school and then entered the Naval Academy during the summer of 1978. And I'm glad I did that in high, again, in hindsight. At the time, as you graduate, you're graduating from high school and all your friends are going to, you know, UNC and ECU and Duke. And, and they're like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going back to high school in Texas. It, it didn't <laughs> seem like that. Yeah. A good deal but ultimately it was and i don't think i was ready to enter the naval academy right out of high school so it worked out and by the time i got there i had you know cut the apron strings was ready to go four years at the naval academy as a midshipman i loved my life as a as a midshipman i i sort of identified with every part of it that doesn't mean everything was awesome um you know developing socially was a challenge uh in that construct and uh you know, I had sort of that FOMO, fear of missing out uh, from time to time. Grades were always a challenge. It's a hard school. 
I was a political science major, but still you have to take a bunch of engineering courses. Thank you, Hyman Rickover. And <laughs> then you get to be a senior and it's time to pick the job you're going to have once you get commissioned. So I was relatively open-minded about my options. So, you know, surface warfare, nuke was not an option because I wasn't smart enough and they didn't, you know, I didn't fit their, their profile. Not terribly sad about that. Uh, Marine Corps, I'd been exposed to the Marine Corps. My eyes were bad, so I knew I couldn't be a pilot. And the Marine Corps Navy flight officer, Naval flight officer guarantees were limited and they went away very quickly. So that wasn't something I was, uh, uh, that was in the cards. One of the senior Marines there was like, well, just go to the basic school, which is where Marines go before they go other places and, and do really well. And then you can pick, you know, NFO. I'm like, I, I, that's too risky. I just see myself being a grunt, you know, being an infantry officer. And that's not really what I wanted to do. Again, I have max respect for infantry officers, but that wasn't me. And so of my options, and I'd actually had the opportunity, I see the F-4 behind you there, uh, to fly in the backseat of an F-4J in Hawaii when I, nice. during my what we call first class cruise. I was at Kaneohe Marine Corps Station, flew with VMFA 235. Um the, the death angels and uh, loved it. I was home, right? It just sort of hits you like, like a religious experience strapping into the Martin Baker, breathing the O2 burners on the takeoff. We did a one V one, you know, he's asking me to call the fight. Um, I was very aero adaptable. Didn't get air sick, loved the feeling of G and, and just the whole thing. Came back in, actually took an arrested landing at the field because the field at Caneo is uh, sort of short. And then we go to the O Club and we're talking with our hands and drinking beer. And, and I'm like, OK, these are my people. And that's your responsibility, either in ROTC or whatever your accession sources or at the at a service academy is to find your people. So selected what we call NFO, Naval Flight Officer. Went down to Pensacola as soon as I could. Wound up doing well in the nfo training so i got my choice which was the rio pipeline radar intercept officer at that time they were still sending people to f4s as well as f14s uh obviously you want the coolest latest thing so i was lucky to get f14s when i got my wings and then it was just a matter of coast east coast west coast this was the glory days of the tomcat there were 22 f14 squadrons at this time 11 wow. on each and a RAG, the training squadron on each coast. So I was more of an East Coast kind of guy. I like Virginia Beach. Wound up going to um, to NES Oceana in Virginia Beach. Um, because I did well in the RAG, I was top scope, something I'm very proud of. Uh, among my peers and my RAG class were all Naval Academy classmates. The Rios were all Naval Academy classmates. Uh, something I've documented on the channel a few times, who all went on to great things in the airplane. Um, not all of them are with us anymore, but uh, I was very proud to be number one among those guys. But as a function of that, I was the number one draft pick to go to a fleet squadron. So I went to VF-32, the swordsman, mm -hmm. which has a very rich heritage. If you've seen the movie Devotion, oh, yeah. Jesse Brown and uh, Thomas Hudner were in the swordsman flying F-4Us in Korea. So we're flying F-14As, and we're going right on cruise. So I was picked to go to VF-32. I went on deployment. Uh, do not pass go. Go. And that's a cool way to do it, really. Because until you've had a deployment, you're a new guy. 
And so a lot of guys join their squadron and they just have to go through this new guy thing for like six months or maybe a year before they go on cruise. Like, you know, because everybody's going to like lecture you and mansplain you about, you know, on deployment, dot, dot, dot. So for me, I went right on deployment, didn't have to weather all of that. You know, port calls in places like Palma and we went all the way to Singapore and we're in the Med and we're in the North Arabian Sea. These are the days before you went to the in into the Persian Gulf, flying intercepts, intercepted Russian AN-22s and Iranian P-3s. And we did an exercise uh, called uh, Beacon Flash against the Omanis uh, and, and their Star Wars Canyon there is amazing. And 1v1s against Jaguars and and hawker nice. hunters or hunters, uh, and, and just great ops, flying a lot, and went through the Suez Canal for the first time. So it was really uh, an amazing, eye-opening experience for me. And the squadron was, you know, like any fighter squadron, full of talented, big personalities. And I just was at home there. That's where I got my call sign. We're in port in Palma, and I was out of money, and I ask a guy if I could borrow some money. And his response was, you're a mooch. And everybody around the table was like, oh, that's it. That's it. And that's what it, you know, people get them for a, a lot of different reasons. In fact, I did an episode about sort of the etymology of call signs. And, and uh, uh, so that's how I got mine. So go through that tour, cruised on independence. Uh, and then we cross-decked over to Kennedy which had just come out of the yards. So my first two, two deployments were on conventional carriers, mm. something we don't have anymore. And uh, that's pretty sporty habitability, right? I mean, the water tastes like JP5. Sometimes the showers don't work. Often the showers don't work. <laughs> the AC will shut off for no reason from time to time. So you learn to appreciate creature comforts. But those ships work great. And I, I'm, I'm proud of my roughing it on conventional carriers in the, in the early days. So finish that tour. Now you go to shore duty. And uh, so, uh, oh, and also the second deployment on, on Kennedy, we never left the Med. So this is a Cold mm -hmm. War era deployment. So we're doing cat and mouth against the Russians, you know, Krivax and Sovremenes and Moskva and, you know, all of uh, Kiev class and so forth. That was the name of the game. Uh, and pull, pulling into a lot of ports, so it was sort of what we call a love boat deployment where we pull into port. My fiance, now wife, visited uh, me when we were in Nice or in Cannes, rather. And we went over to Nice and, and uh, you know, had a good time. So it was an old school deployment. It was very much an 80s deployment, a, a lot of fun. And again, the squadron was uh, was enjoyable. Um, the CO kind of became the model for Soup Campbell and, and Punk's war, but that's a different story. Um, and, and so shore duty time, I wanted to keep flying among my options because I, I really didn't do that great among my peers in terms of fitness reports in that in that during that deployment for a myriad reasons. And uh, which, in fact, were, was the, the sort of impetus behind or the momentum, the, the catalyst behind Punk's War. But I wound up being an instructor down at VT-86, which is the, the Rio training squadron. Uh, which was a lot of fun. And so I got to train the next generation of Rios before they got their wings. In fact, I served with some of these guys later uh, when I went back to the Tomcat community. And then after only a year at VT86, I was asked to do an unorthodox thing, to go become the editor of Approach Magazine, which was the Naval Aviation 
safety magazine, right? The, the safety center mm-hmm. in Norfolk puts that out. And the reason I got that job is because I had started doing a cartoon for approach called Brown Shoes and Action Comics, oh. which had sort of an underground, you know, R. Crumb feel to it. It had a little bit of a seditious tone, but there was always a safety message baked in. Uh, I was kind of surprised what I got away with it, under that sort of platform. And the guy's name was Danger Boy. Uh, I'd actually been a cartoonist for the magazine, The Lampoon at the Naval Academy, too. And so I only know how to draw like one character. And Danger Boy <laughs> looks a lot like this guy that was called Morty Mid back at the Naval Academy. And except Danger Boy has a cleft chin. Um, Morty Mid didn't. So that was fun. I did that for years. And I got some notoriety as a function of that was that was my first sort of, you know, media impact was the guy behind Brown Shoes and Action Comics, because this is way before I was a novelist. So as a function of that notoriety and also the fact that when I was the editor of Approach, I was flying at Oceana with whoever would have me. So mostly that was with VF-43, the aggressor squadron, the challengers, call sign ambush. And they had TA-4s, F-5Fs. Two seat F 16s, the F 16N. What a mm. spank. All oh, the N, yeah, wow. Yes. So I am getting a lot of stick time. And because pilots used to love to just go feed off the brakes. Okay, Mooch, you got the airplane. So I learned how to fight all of those airplanes, fly parade, all of these things. People are like, why do you fly DCS so well? It's because of that, you know, because you were a Rio. What do you know? I'm like, uh, okay, stick with me. Right. And so. Did that tour, and as a function of that tour and, and me being involved over at Fighter Wing, I became what's called a by-name call to go back to a fighter squadron. Hmm. So I went back to VF-143, a very unorthodox, sort of put the little trolley back on the rails in a way that was unorthodox. Because generally, nice. when you go to the training command, you'll go to be ship's company. You're going to be a shooter or assistant air ops or something. And I was I was able to not do that and stay in the airplane. Okay. So the puking dogs, kick ass logo, you know, it's the Griffin. Oh yeah. You know, got it right here. Uh, you know, the wing dog. Um, looks like it's hunched over and puking. That's how the, the, the squadron got its nickname. And at this time they were they had gotten brand new, new jet smell, fresh from Grumman. Ooh, what we called F A pluses at that time. Right. Six months later, redesignated the F-14B. So get rid of the Pratt and Whitney TF-30, known for compressor stalling, just like you saw in Top Gun, the original Top Gun. Now we have the GE F-110, a great engine. Right. And the backseat had some other gear. We had new raw gear, new missile warning indication gear and so forth. So I'm in a and this squadron was an all star team, the CEO. Uh, was great at wooing the talent. And so we had just this ready room that made my first squadron look like amateurs. (laughs) Also, I'm on my first nuke boat. So we're on the Eisenhower. And so I realized that habitability was much better on a nuclear carrier than on a conventional carrier. Yeah. And so we haul ass. The war starts, Desert Storm. I'm in the rag. My CO is like saying my future CEO, the, the dog CEO, it's like, you got to get here because we're going to war. So they put me through a quickie, what we call a cat two syllabus at the rag. And I got to the squadron and the war ended. Right. And so mm. we went to Fallon, 
uh, ready to join the effort. And then the war ended while we were out there. So they delayed our deployment. We, we didn't go till, you know, about six months after hostilities ended. Now, when we got there, it was like showing up the morning after a really wild party. Right. <laughs> it's like, wow, this this is nuts. This is right. people are like, oh, yeah, we're still hungover. Yeah. Right. And so oil fire is still raging. Wow. Ubian Bridge blown out. Highway to hell was cleared, but the cars were still yeah. just pushed to the side of the road. Wow. The devastation was substantial. We we would fly over Al Jaber. You could see the hangars were the you know the reinforced hangars were all blown blown out. I think your lads did that in the tornado. Yeah, yeah. And so um, it was it was wild. And also that's the first time I went in the Gulf proper. So nice. transiting through the 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 you know straits there of Hormuz and mm-hmm. felt a little weird. It's like you know we're in range of you know, missiles here. Um, and you didn't have a whole lot of time to react between Iraq and Iran. Mm. So we got comfortable with that, pulled into Dubai, which was a shadow of its current self back then. There was one hotel, the Hilton, and nothing else. And you look wow. at, you know, it now, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, um, that was a great tour, and it really did sort of get my attitude right. Because to be honest, I was thinking about getting out of the Navy after that first tour when I was down at VT-86. In fact, most of the Rio instructors did get out of the Navy. They were all, you know, when they had free time, oh. they're getting their MBAs, and they were all going other places. Right. Because I got to go be the editor of Approach, it sort of saved my 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 outlook and my career. So yeah, I did a shorty tour in 143, 22 months. And then if you have to fill out a resume, you're already behind the power curve. You want to be asked. And then yeah. the resume becomes just an admin sort of after the fact. And so the same with the Navy. And so now I'm developing a reputation as a, 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 a talented video and a good guy to have around and a, a you know, an, an officer who does his job well, because uh, it's not just about the airplane, as I discovered after my first tour. And so <laughs> um, I, I go to the RAG to be an instructor. VF-101, the Grim Reapers. And again, this is where it just keeps getting better and better. Hmm. The RAG, if I thought VF-143 was an all-star team, the RAG is the true all-star team. It's all the best from the entire East Coast squadron base. So, and I was a fresh-caught lieutenant commander. So I had all of these hard-charging lieutenants doing all the work, and I was just bottom-lining stuff. And we're flying all manner of missions. And so we'd go down to Key West to do dogfighting for the tactics mm-hmm. syllabus, be down there for two weeks. We'd do that in January. And we'd go to El Centro to do the strike mission because now the Tomcat is dropping bombs. So yeah. we have a strike syllabus. It's before Lantern, so we're not doing precision-guided bomb dropping, but we're doing dumb bomb, bomb dropping. And so uh, we're starting to introduce that. And carrier quals, which is sporty. You know, the F-14A particularly uh, was a hard airplane to land, as I've documented on the channel. Yeah. Uh, Carol Holcreen and others proved that. May she rest in peace. Uh, so taking a nugget to the boat for the first time takes a special set of skills for a Rio. And again, this is where I say I am as much a co-pilot as I am a weapons systems operator in the F-14. Mm-hmm. I know the front seat as well as a pilot. Uh, because of my time as a RAG instructor. 
So that was very rewarding. Also, your network is forged because you meet all the guys coming through to do a uh, what we call a Cat 3 or Cat 4 syllabus to go to be an exocio of a squadron. You're their instructor during their time in the RAG. So the Mooch brand was ubiquitous at, at, you know, at, by the time I finished my, my tenure as uh, a RAG instructor. However, there was a little detour. I was asked to go be the aide to Air Lant, the mm. air boss. Um, and this is before there was a lead follow relationship. Now, Air Pack is the air boss. In fact, the current air boss is a guy who was a RAG instructor with me, Kenny Weitzel. So he's a three-star. Air Lant is a two-star these days. Back in mm. those days, both of the type commanders were three-stars. So I worked right. for a guy named Vice Admiral Tony Less, who was a light attack guy, had been CEO of the Blue Angels when they transitioned from F-4s to A-4s, uh, and had been CEO of Ranger, he was uh, nav sent before there was a fifth fleet. In fact, he was there for praying mantis operation where we basically sunk the Iranian Navy and uh, a incredible guy. So I'd flown with him. I introduced him to bombing in the F-14 when I was a rag instructor. His aide got in trouble. And so he needed a new aide. And so he picked me. So I was yanked out of the rag. Not quite kicking and screaming, but I wasn't really interested in being on an admiral's staff. <laughs> And went to be his aide. And so this is another one of those things where, you know, if you just show up with the right attitude, um, particularly the Navy will take care of you. I mean, I love the Navy for everything it allowed me to do, you know, and this is why I'm very bullish and I'm very uh, grateful that I get to use the channel to socialize these sorts of things, warts and all. Um, and, and so um, because MLS was such a fantastic human being, we, we wound up. I, I was allowed to do things that most aides don't do. Mm. And it, his staff was super tight. And so when he would get a call from uh, a, another admiral, there were actually three people on the phone. The executive assistant, who was a Navy captain, a P3 guy named Greg Wedding, and me. So we would listen to the conversation. The reason we do that is because when he hung up, he didn't want to have to explain to us what the mm. conversation was about. We would have all the answers as soon as he hung up, you know, so, but in the course of that, I heard some things that were pretty eye opening for a, you know, fresh caught Lieutenant commander who'd only been in fighter squadrons to that point, you know? And so my blinders came off, the machine made sense to me. And so this served me well when I went back again, by name call to join VF 102, the Diamondbacks aboard America. Mm-hmm. They were just transitioning. This is where Mooch was very lucky from the F-14A to the F-14B aboard an old carrier, the last cruise of America. So now I've done, this is my fourth deployment. Three of them are on conventional carriers, only one on a nuke. And so we took America to, to what turned out to be the, the Bosnian conflict. We didn't know that's what we were going to do when we left Norfolk, and we flew aboard from Oceana. In fact, we thought it was going to be like my second deployment, sort of a love boat cruise. Uh -huh. And we had planned out all of these uh, you know, port calls and the wives were going to come over. And it was all sort of, oh, this will be kind of a predictable thing. We got to the Azores during the Translant, and Admiral Bill Cross, Tomcat guy, came up on the, uh, the 1MC, the intercom, and said, gentlemen, I just got a call from Sixth Fleet. 
and uh, we've been told to make best speed for the Adriatic. We're going to war. That's exactly mm. what he said. Because wow. the Theodore Roosevelt and CAG-8 had started dropping bombs on Sarajevo, trying to convince the Serbs to break the siege of, of that city. Yeah. And because, uh, as you know, and I'm sure the listeners know, the genocide in the early 90s was uh, was horrific. Um, and, uh, you know, this is sort of the fallout of the breakup of the Soviet Union. And uh, it was uh, something that NATO particularly wanted to do something about. So we got there and immediately our Hornets started joining the fight, did a quick turnover with the, the Roosevelt. They left and we owned the war. So, again, this is before the F-14 has um, Lantern, mm-hmm. our precision-guided capability. So what we did is we were basically an extension of the Hornet. And when I say Hornet, that's legacy Hornet, F-18C, not Super Hornet. So we would dial in the laser codes, and or basically the Hornet would dial in the laser codes, and they would tell us to pickle, and mm-hmm. they would guide the bomb that we dropped. Right. So we were basically an extension of their wing. We could carry four Mark 80 series uh, dumb bombs on the airplane. And uh, so we wound up doing that. The main thing we did, because this is before the digital era as well. So wet film is the state of the art in terms of airborne reconnaissance. There's a pod that fits on the bottom of the Tomcat called TARPS, Tactical Air Reconnaissance Pod System. Three cameras in it. Horizon to horizon, uh, an IR camera and another one that looks in in front. And we would fly all around as tasked by the Joint Forces Command in Vincenza. Um, And uh, that tasking came a lot. And it would be pop up like the mass graves of Perigador. Go over there and take a picture of it. So we did that a lot. And and so I spent a lot of time over uh, over Bosnia. In fact, that's how I earned my my air medal which I have nice. here next. Nice one. Uh, and and uh, so, um, which is the award I'm most proud of in my career. And that was that was really intense. So uh, we didn't get, you know, we didn't suffer the fate of Scott O'Grady. We didn't get shot down by SA-6s. Uh, we had kind of nullified their tactical SAM capability by that time. And anytime we went feet dry, we had a prowler and company, uh, the electric so you couldn't go without a prowler able to jam pop-up threats. Uh, we would see some stuff on the ground. I remember doing one TARPS mission particularly, uh, and we do kind of the four corners around the country. Don't spill out into Serbia. That's bad, right? Yeah. Um, and and uh, so turning on the northwest quadrant there by Banjaluka, and during the turn, I look down, and there's like – explosions happening on this ridge wow. line and you kind of like oh yeah there's a war going on down there yeah 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 if you're in your sort of sterile environment at that time we used this big gps this is before the airplane had any kind of gps the ins was notorious for drifting oh really so you couldn't really rely on that oh yeah the tomcat ins was uh was designed to get the Phoenix missile into a 25-mile basket. It was not nice. designed to make you not fly into Serbia. Oh, yeah. You know, so, so there were different updates yeah. we could do based on GeoRefs or whatever, or your waypoint. You know, if you had a waypoint in there and you saw that there was difference, you could do a correction, and the waypoint would jump to where you actually were, and that would fix the INS. There were, this is where Rio's made their money. 
but we also had this new thing called, we call it the Fisher Price, because it was like the size of a kid's toy with gigantic buttons. It had this antenna. It was a GPS unit. The screen was like microscopic, but the device was huge. <laughs> and so it worked great. And we do uh, updates based on that. However, when you went into a turn, the antenna would get blanked. Oh, you know, so you'd be like, oh, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. During that, you'd come out of the turn and it would have to look at the satellites again. It would take a while. And so that was kind of nerve wracking. But this is sort of the transition of an analog airplane into a digital airplane, for one thing, and also strict fighter, dumb bomber into precision guided kick-ass weapon that served the nation well uh, towards the end of its existence. So Bosnia ends. In fact, the French brokered a peace thing. So that hot op turned into a presence piece for the balance of that deployment. We did a quickie jaunt down to through the Suez Canal and around the Arabian Gulf into the, the, the Persian Gulf. During that time, I got to lead a two-plane tarp stat out of Al Jaber, Kuwait. Mm. So carrier clears the Suez to the south. We launch off, fly over Saudi, which is really cool, into this base in, in Kuwait, Al Jaber, which many uh, Desert Storm vets operated out of, Harrier guys and Air Force A-10 folks, Casey Campbell, who's been on the channel, a female uh, A-10 pilot uh, who's awesome, uh, operated out of Al Jaber. So time off the boat is good time. And so I, I, I got to leave this two-plane detachment. We had a maintenance debt with us. And so at night, we there was this this liaison guy who was actually a uh, what we call a fallen angel. He he was uh, uh, he was taken off flight status. He kept his wings, uh, but uh, that was his job was to shepherd visiting guys into Kuwait City at night so they could do right. things like go to Fuddruckers, you know, and, and get a normal hamburger or whatever. <laughs> and so we did that. Um, it was just really again the 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 stuff you did around flying is what made the profession amazing. You know, I remember we're driving this, I think it was a, a, a forerunner, you know, along this highway and it's flat, flat. And there's like a camel train out there and the sun is wow. setting. It is looked at as something out of central casting. Right. And so we get closer and we're like, roll the window down because we had what we called the, uh, the Diamondback Thrill Cam. You know, it's a big VHS camera. And, and so like roll the window down and we were pretty close. And as soon as we rolled the window down, you could smell the camels. It's like, oh, no, roll the window back up. <laughs> Those are nasty animals, if you ever were wondering. Yeah. They're mean, too. Uh, but also, uh, but anyway, so um, did that for six days, I guess, and then flew back aboard. And, and we were on the night page uh, of Operation Southern Watch, which is the patrolling of the no-fly zone of Iraq below the 33rd parallel. So the Air Force did what they were doing Noon to midnight, we did midnight to noon. Right. And and so that was kind of body clock challenging. Yeah. Uh, so imagine, you you know, you brief a, a flight uh, at 1 a.m., you launch at 3 a.m., and you get back at 6. So you're coming back at sunrise. So you'd launch case 3, which is the nighttime procedure, and then you'd come back case 1. It's kind of weird, kind of fun. Uh, or, you know, you, you just do case three if you if you were doing all nighttime ops. Uh, so my body never got used to 
because you're like, oh, just go to sleep. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. I, just, I can't go to sleep at, you know, 10 a.m. I just, you know, mm. and, and so that was challenging. Turns out we were only there for about 10 days. And then we were ordered back to the Adriatic because the Serbs were threatening uh, to do something stupid mm. again. And so um, we did that for the rest of that cruise. So that was a fantastic tour. Amazing. Um, I was the operations officer for VF-102, um, and we worked our ass off. We broke all existing records for Tomcat's employment. We won the Battle E, which is the award for excellence. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's, it's just great to be on a team that's super talented like that. And the CEO was a great guy and uh, let me do my thing. And that's all I ask, really. And so as a function of that tour, I was asked by the deputy air wing commander, who was about to be the air wing commander, to come be his operations officer in the same air wing. So that meant I'm going to do back-to-back sea duty. Mm. Um, so I called from uh, the sailor phone home, you know, that we had now. Now you could call home. They had these little cards where you'd pay $10 for 10 minutes. Wow. And I called uh, Mrs. Carroll, Mrs. Mooch, and said, you want to take it around the track again? And her father had been an A6 pilot and she grew up in Naval aviation and went to high school in Virginia beach. And she had a great spouse network and they knew what they wanted to do. In fact, at some level, they, they were upset when the husbands came home because they wrecked everything that they would do <laughs> in terms of parties and, you know, get togethers, <laughs> put the kids in the playpen and we'll go over here and drink wine or whatever. And so she was like, let's do it. Cause it was going to be good for my career because I was playing makeup from that first tour in some yeah. ways, get it, needed to get well. And uh, was also going to be working for, for a guy who was awesome, um, a Boomer Suffelbeam. And, and so I met Admiral Mike Mullen during, uh, we were down in Roosevelt Rose doing a missile X. He was actually a frocked one star. He had just pinned on one star mm. and uh, got to love him right away. So he was going to be what we called a battle group commander, now called a strike group commander, aboard the USS George Washington. So we're leaving America. America was being retired. Um, quite proud of what we did on that ship on her last deployment. Uh, she was rode hard, but put away in working condition. Um, in fact, I invite your audience to watch the Kuznetsov episode I did because I talk about a day we hosted the crew of Kuznetsov aboard America. And that showed just the capability nice. of an American conventional carrier on its last deployment. Uh, which was eye-watering to the Russians. Mm -hmm. um, so I also got my conning alongside qual, like I was a ship driver on America. Oh, um, wow. A, a cool thing, yeah. So I got to do unrep uh, in rough seas, by the way. Oh, uh, Bob okay. was the captain. He's a great guy. He's like, a roping and a riding. He's sitting <laughs> in his chair. We're like, oh. <laughs> so it was uh, very, very fun and a very tight air wing uh, ship's company team. Uh, which, you know, kind of was the rule in my, there was no differentiation really. And that was, you know, leadership always attended to that. Uh, and uh, so now uh, I, you know, I did that, that CAG ops tour aboard George Washington, just another side note. So uh, in fact, when I fly DCS, one of the modules in the supercarrier is you're aboard George Washington. So for mm -hmm. me, that's like homecoming. Right. It's super realistic. But I also did the shakedown of GW when that carrier was brand new in the early nineties when I was in the dogs, after we got home from Ike deployment back in 92, we were asked to go aboard with a skeleton crew and take 
GW down to the Puerto Rican operations area, which was a blast. So that was a cherry carrier. We had no admiral staff aboard. We could just fly as much as we wanted. And we pulled into Fort Lauderdale, which is always a good deal. And uh, so I had had experience during the uh, basically the shakedown uh, of GW. And now I'm cruising on GW for what turned out to be my final deployment. So we go back to uh, the Med and we're in Haifa and uh, we get word. Actually, Admiral Mullen likes to joke that he was told by Christian Amanpour on CNN that he was going to the Gulf. Because he saw the report on TV, and then he was called by the 6th Fleet Commander, Admiral right. Abbott. Like, hey, uh, Mike, here's a heads up. He said, I already know. <laughs> I know. And so yeah. he went to the Gulf, and uh, Rick Hunt was Admiral Mullen's ops officer, later went on to be a three-star himself. Wow. Uh, now works for Fincantieri, the shipbuilder. Um, great guy. Uh, he said to me, we're never coming back to the Met. And uh, that turned out to be true. So we spent the rest of our time again doing Operation Southern Watch, yeah, flying, flying our our asses off. So I got to go into um, Saudi. Know, were you in the B at this time? Yeah, we're flying Bs. It's the same yeah. squadron, same airway. Yeah. So it's CAG one. Mm. So the same squadron I'd been a department head in mm. aboard America is now aboard George Washington. Love so that. I knew everybody, and it was a rigged game. Um, so I, you know. I'd just gone through the entire interdeployment training cycle and a deployment. And again, Boomer, Stuffel being the CAG, was great at wooing talent. So every member of my staff was uh, an icon in their communities. Mm. Helicopter guy, EA6 guy, the intel officers. This is the first time I'd cruised with females, and they were both awesome. Um, I remained good friends with with one of them, whose husband uh, was an E2 pilot. And... Uh, so again, I mean, what's to not like? You know, I have great exactly. support on the home front. Uh, I'm working for people like Mike Mullen, who went on to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs yeah. of Staff, as I'm sure you probably know. Yeah. We're aboard a, a carrier with kick-ass airplanes. Now we also have Lantern. So between my department head tour and uh, being CAG Ops, Snort Snodgrass, who was fighter wing, Larry Slade, who was actually a POW during Desert Storm. Yeah. They incorporated the lantern pod on the Tomcat. So we cruised with what we call F-14B upgrades. It was actually a designation on the airplane. Okay. And so these airplanes had lantern capabilities. So long story short, and for more, visit some episodes on the channel. They slapped the lantern pod which is the targeting part of the lantern system that was designed for the Air Force on the airplane. So all they had to figure out was how do you make the lantern pod talk to the AUG-9? And what they did is they put a little GPS antenna on the turtle back of the airplane. So in the back seat where everything wound up happening, um, there was a hand control unit and a digital readout. So the navigation information I had was super accurate now. The INS didn't matter anymore, except if you had to shoot a Phoenix. Um, And the Phoenix was actually going away at that time because Snort used Phoenix money to pay for Lantern. Yeah. yeah. But on my now, it's not the circular fishbowl anymore for my tactical information display that you see if you look at the cockpit of uh, the rear cockpit of an F-14. Now I have what's called a PTIT, programmable TID, that's a 10 by 10 display, high res, 
So suddenly, if you had a you know, a, a high-vis target that had cultural sensitivity, you're going to send the Tomcat. You're not going to send the Hornet. Oh. The Hornet had, uh, you know, the lightning pod, and their thing was this little dinky, like looking at an old television. It was, you know, fuzzy. And yeah, now yeah, we yeah. had gorgeous, like, thing. Um, and, and the tables were turned because the Hornet guys copped max attitude back in the Bosnian conflict days. Uh, like, okay, we're going to fight the war. You guys go do your photo missions. Right. So it's like, okay, now we're going to go fight the war. You guys do your whatever you're going to do, because we're going to do all the important missions. 